All right, Flourishing Grace, good morning. How are we? All right, good. It's good to be with you guys um, as we continue this Advent series. My name is Josh Knight, for those of you who are new. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision here at Flourishing Grace. And uh, as Austin said, Christmas Eve is coming. It's going to be jam-packed, three gatherings. It's going to be a lot of fun together. And then Backman Elementary. Uh, one of the things on Backman that I just wanted to kind of highlight real quick before we get into the word um, that Austin was talking about. So in the past, we've done this with Backman for the past four years. And um, every year we said, hey, we, we want to kind of support and kind of sponsor 50 kids, 50 kids at Backman. There are, it's like $100 per kid. So we need to raise $5,000 of cash and toys in order to provide for these families. And this year they came to us and said, hey, could we up that? Could we make it 80 kids? And we said, heck yeah, we can. For sure, Flourishing Grace can do that. For sure, we are, we are willing to lean in hard and to provide for the needs of families who are not going to be able to provide for their kids this year. We want to extend the love of Christ to families who desperately need that. And so I just want to encourage you, again, go online at flourishinggrace.org slash Backman. You can read all about that there. You can give there, um, and we'll go buy those toys and presents this week. And then this coming Friday and Saturday, we need people who can wrap presents. And that's not me. So I'm desperate for your help, okay? I am the worst rapper, my wife will tell you. It, it looks like people are like, hey, it's a ball. That's no, actually a book. Um, I don't know. It does, it's how it, it's how, how it looks like when I rap presents. And so um, it's going to be a lot of fun this weekend at Backman Elementary. But we got a long way to go. We need to uh, purchase a lot of gifts uh, this week. Uh, so Zephaniah chapter 3 is where we are this morning, and, uh, and keep your Bibles open. We're going to walk through all of chapter 3, um, but before we do, I want to kind of set the tone for Zephaniah um, and what's going on as we've been, we've been walking through some of the minor prophets in this Advent series. And as we kind of talk about that, I want to talk about some of the feedback we've gotten on the minor prophets in this Advent series. Uh, some people have been like, hang on, man, just so you know, Josh, I just want to let you know, just, just kindness, grace, I just want to let you know, you know it's Christmas, right? Like, it's, it's Christmas. It's the time of like joy and love and delight. And the minor prophets are like heavy and dark. And I don't know if you listened in for the first few verses of chapter 3, but it's heavy and it's dark. And so I just want to remind us, like I'm not, I'm not naming names, like people who might have said, hey, it's Christmas, but my wife um, <laughs> is like, hey, you might want to just take it easy. That was a good sermon, but take it easy. Um, listen, it's not Christmas, just so we're clear. It's not Christmas. Christmas is on December 25th. Yeah, you guys know. 25th. It's been that way for a long time. December 25th. It's not Christmas. This is Advent. We're in Advent right now. Um, and Advent is this season. It's this time that's preparing us for Christmas. And if you want to be prepared rightly and well for all of the good news and all of the joy and all of the love that we're going to celebrate here on Christmas Eve when we pack this place out, we bring all of our family and all of our friends, we sing carols and we celebrate, if you want to be ready for that, you got to experience the bad news. And you've heard me, if you've been around Flourishing Grace, you've heard me talk about this a lot, that, that in order to understand the weight of good news, you've got to understand the weight of bad news. It's, it, they go hand in hand. You can't have good news without bad news. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. Good news and bad news are intertwined. Anytime you have good news, it comes out of, at the very least, the chance of bad news. Every single time. If your kid comes home with straight A's on their report card, that's good news. It's worthy of celebrating. Let's go get milkshakes. Let's go out to dinner. Let's celebrate this. But why is it good news? Because of the chance he got F's. 
All right. Some of you have been there, you know. Or maybe he had F's and he worked and he worked and he worked and he worked until he got A's. That's worthy of celebration. Good news. It's good news because it comes out of a chance of bad news. Maybe the doctor calls and there's a cure for what you have. That's good news. It's really good news. Why is it really good news? You had an incurable disease. Okay? Really bad news. And you only know, you only know the way to the good news because you knew the way to the bad news. And here's the second thing I want you to see. Listen, the, the extent to which the good news is good is directly proportional to the extent to which the bad news is bad. Straight A's is good news, but it's not as good as a, as a cure for a disease. Why? Because having an incurable disease is worse than F's. I would much rather my kid come home with F's on the report card than my kid having an incurable disease, right? So the bad news is directly proportional to the good news. And if, if the gospel, the good news, is the best news ever told, and it is, Christmas morning we will celebrate, and Christmas Eve here, we will celebrate the greatest news Ever, that our God has come for us. He's come to rescue us and redeem us. It's the best news ever. If it is the best news ever, has to, by necessity, come out of the worst news ever. And Advent calls us to sit in the worst news ever, to remind ourselves that the world has been darkened by sin, that we are a hungry and a desperate people in need of a Savior. And that's the point. And nobody does that better than the minor prophets, man. They do a really good job. And in fact, I don't know if anybody does it better than Zephaniah. Zephaniah does an amazing job of stacking this unbelievable good news next to unbelievably bad news. Uh, he's really good at it. The end of Zephaniah chapter 3 might be the most beautiful, the most just astounding picture of God's love towards you in all of Scripture. There is nothing like it. And we're going to lean into Zephaniah 3 today. But the rest of Zephaniah, pretty much the opposite of that, all right? Zephaniah 1 might be the most horrifying, most intense picture of God's hatred towards sin in the entire Bible. It's, it's dark, all right? It's really dark. I'm just, we're not going to get into chapter 1 today, but I'm going to give you a little flavor, all right? Because it's just fun, all right, to watch you squirm a little bit. Zephaniah chapter 1, just look at the first couple verses, 2 and 3, verse 2 and 3. Zephaniah 1, 2 and 3, I'll throw it up on the screen for you. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And he goes on like that for the next 18 verses. He never lets up one ounce. It just gets worse. It just gets darker and darker and darker from there. It is intense. And some of you are like, I brought a friend, man. Like, what are you doing? What is happening right now? Don't you realize, Josh, it's Christmas. You cannot talk about this at Christmas. I'm like, no, it's Advent. You're like, I don't care what it is. You can't talk about this now. Listen, if not Advent, when? If we don't lean into this, if we, don't, if we don't face the bad news, when do we do it? Some of you are like, Memorial Day. 
Like, what's the least attended Sunday of the year? Let's do it then. Let's do it then when I'm not going to bring a friend, right? No, we have to do it now. We need to prepare ourselves for the joy of Christmas. We prepare ourselves for the joy of Christmas. And so, friends, this morning, I want us to be awakened. I want us to remind ourselves of what Advent is. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which simply means coming. Coming. That's what it means. And this is four weeks leading up to Christmas, and it's meant to awaken us, to open our eyes, to awaken our souls to what life would be like, what our life and our eternity would be like without Jesus. And therefore, as we are awakened to what life and eternity would be like without Jesus, our hunger for him increases. Our delight in him increases. Our joy in him increases. Our love for him and our affection for him increases so that we are ready to receive the good news of Christmas. But you'll never know the extent of the good news until you sit in the extent of the bad news. And this is why we were walking through Zephaniah. And really, the great uh, Christmas uh, storytellers of old understood this theme. They understood this idea. The greatest Christmas story ever told, right? Charles Dickens, The Christmas Carol. So good. Charles Dickens understood this theme. It's the theme of the story. A Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, needs to be awakened, he needs to have this, this season of Advent awaken him. And he's, he's awakened to what his life, what his life has been like, Christmas past, what it is like, present, and what it will be like future, if there's not a radical transformation in his life. And when does this radical transformation come? Christmas morning. That's when it comes. We used to understand this. We used to know this. We used to be able to sit in this. That movie is horrifying. When I was a little kid and that little door knocker comes to life, right? Terrifying, all right? But we need that. I'll give you another one. The greatest Christmas movie ever, right? And you can debate me on it, but you're wrong. It's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. George Bailey in this, in this story is depressed. He's going to kill himself until he's awakened He's awakened to what his family and his friends and his town would be like if there was no George Bailey. And when does his radical transformation take place? Midnight Christmas Eve. Christmas morning. Christmas morning is when it takes place. That's when it happens. George Bailey's transformed. It's it's this theme of Advent that we need to be people who are awakened to what our life and our eternity would be like if there was no Jesus, if there was no coming. The king did not come for us. And our awakening happens when he comes, Christmas morning. We cannot become a complacent people. And that's the first thing I want you to see from Zephaniah, from this work of Zephaniah, is that complacency curates a culture of sin. Complacency curates a culture of sin. And friends, listen to me, we're complacent people. All right, we we and this is why I'm like shaking you this morning a little bit, right? We we just we want to just focus in on Christmas. We want to busy ourselves in the season and just focus on that. More food, more lights, more festivity, more snowmen, more snowball fights, more jingle bells, more Christmas trees, more presents, more of all this. Just distract me from the actual meaning of Advent, so I can just get through the holiday season. We become a complacent people. 
And Zephaniah warns us of this. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, it'll be up here on the screen. He says this, At that time, this is God speaking, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. The people of Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day have become a complacent people. They become a complacent people. Um, they have bought into this idea that God, there is a God, I believe there is a God, but he's not going to do anything bad. He's not going to do anything good. He just is, right? That's just who he is. He's not, he doesn't really do anything. He's not an active God. He's not coming. He's not going. He's not really doing anything. And what had happened in the history of Israel, and you've got to understand this in order to understand Zephaniah, is that in Israel, the law of Moses, the actual physical law of Moses, had been lost. It had been lost for decades, okay? An entire generation grew up not knowing the law of Moses because it is gone. Nobody knew where it was. It was just forgotten. And it was in the temple the entire time. I don't understand how it got lost in the temple, but it did, right? The janitor's closet, maybe, I don't know, under a couch, I don't know. It was lost for decades. And so, so a generation of people raise up, and their example of how to act is the other nations, and so they erect all these idols to different gods on all the high places. And even in the temple, they bring in the gods of Baal and the gods of Asherah into the temple. And they worship these foreign gods. And they're doing all these things until one day the high priest, he's sitting on the couch and he starts cleaning through the couch to loosen, looking for loose change. And all of a sudden, what is this? It's the law of Moses. Okay, not really in the couch. Um, I don't know where he found it. But he found it in the temple. And he starts flipping through it and his mind is Alone. He's like, the king has to see this. He takes it to King Josiah. King Josiah reads the law of Moses. And in that moment, he begins to just weep profusely, tears his royal robes, and moves into a time of mourning. Because in a second, his, he is a, his soul is awakened. He's awakened to who God actually is and who God has called his people to be. And he realizes this is not how we view God. And this is certainly not how we are acting and behaving. And Josiah and the high priest and Zephaniah go on to lead the people in the greatest spiritual revival the nation of Israel had ever seen. They clear all of the idols from the temple and all the high places throughout all of Israel. They take them down and they burn them. They get rid of them. Um, they absolutely destroy them. So Zephaniah is writing out of this time and out of this season. He's saying we must repent. We must turn back to God. God has revealed himself to us. He's given us his law. We must turn back to him. We can no longer be a complacent people. We need to wake up. The message of Zephaniah is a message of Advent. Again and again and again, he, the message is clear. He is coming coming. And Advent is coming. The King is coming. God is coming. And it's not a good picture. He's coming to judge us for all the things that we've done, for all of our disobedience and all of our sin. This is the message of Zephaniah. Advent. Not a good one. And I just wonder how many of us here this morning have become a complacent people. 
in our lives, we've been lulled to sleep believing that God's not really doing anything. He's not going to do anything good. He's not really going to do anything bad. Yet, a couple thousand years ago, he, he came and he did something good. But since then, he doesn't really do anything. The idea of a relationship with Jesus is a foreign concept to us. If I asked you, how is your relationship with Jesus? You'd be like, I don't know what that means. We go to church because it feels like the right thing to do. Or yeah, I want my kids to experience faith at a young age. I think it'll be good for them. But when it comes to your actual relationship with Jesus, intimacy with the God of all things, it's non-existent. Have we grown, grown complacent? Have we brought in the idols of the world into our life? The idol of self? The idol of comfort? Do we bow to the idol of success in our careers and the idol of wealth over our families and over our lives? The idol of influence and the idol of fame in social media. The idol of being liked, the idol of being known. Are these the things that we are bowing our, our lives to? And have we forgotten who our God is and have we forgotten who he's called us to be? Have we become the very complacent people that the people of Jerusalem had become in their day? I think for many of us, for many of us, as a whole, it's true. We become a complacent people. And we need an advent. We need an awakening of the soul. Josiah once felt the same way until one day he found the word of God and realized that none of it was true. God wants a vibrant and supernatural flourishing relationship with us. And he's gone to great lengths to pursue us. He's gone to great lengths to woo us. We need an awakening of the soul. We need to find the law again. We need to find advent. We need to be awakened to Christmas. And that's what I hope happens in this whole series in the Minor Prophets. The second thing I want you to see this morning is this. In his absence, he is active. In absence, he is active. God is active, always pursuing you. Even in his absence, he is active. He is called out to the people of Jerusalem again and again and again and again. And they've chosen to ignore him. But he's not, he's not inactive. And when I say absent, um, let's just be clear for a minute. God is not absent. He is right here. He is filling this space. He is near to you. If you are in Christ, he's nearer to you than the breath in your lungs. His Holy Spirit is living in you. He's active in you, and he's moving. And when I talk about absent, I mean his manifest presence, okay? I, I'm talking about the pillar of smoke and fire. I'm talking about Christ. Um, being born in a manger is manifest present, actually present in a physical way. Okay? Even when he is not physically here, in a physical manifest way, he is active. He's moving constantly. And we see that. What I want to do is I want to um, begin to wade into chapter 3. The rest of our time is going to walk through chapter 3 that Austin read for us earlier. It says this in verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious. And defiled, the oppressing city, she listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust the Lord, she does not draw near to her God, right? So speaking of the people of Jerusalem, right, she's independent, they're an independent people, They, they can do it themselves, they can pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and they can get the job done, they don't need his help. 
I, I, they, don't, they don't listen to his correction. No, 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 I, I know the right way. I can figure this out. They're stubborn people, and they do not draw near to him. I don't need your help. I've got this. And as a result, they're living in sin. They're a defiled and rebellious people. He goes on in verse 3, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Zephaniah is declaring that God has seen your sin and he's seen the sin of the city. Don't you know, don't you understand? Every morning he pours forth his justice. Every dawn he is present. He is active. He is moving. Even in his absence, he is present and he sees it all. He sees your sin. He sees the sin of the city. Zephaniah is declaring this over Jerusalem. And I'm declaring it over you today. Does it sound familiar? A people who are fiercely independent. Who can do it all on their own. A people of corrupt officials and politicians. Anybody, anybody know anybody like that? A place like that? Corrupt politicians? Does that exist? I can't quite put my finger on it, but I feel like it's familiar. A place of fiercely independent people place of corrupt politicians, a place where the, the pastors of the day are also corrupt. They lie to their people for their own financial gain, and they want power and fame more than they want a faithful people. Sounds familiar, but I can't quite put my finger on where that would be. Where the prophets of the day lie for their own financial gain. They do violence to the law. They would rather have financial gain than a repentant people. Can't quite name the place, but it seems like I know it. Is Zephaniah not describing us in the West? Is he not describing you and me as a fiercely independent people? Is he not describing our culture of corrupt politicians, of corrupt pastors and prophets and priests? Is he not describing us? Is that not the day in which we live? It is. And friends, God sees it all, and he's active in it all. He's not absent. For those of you who have been lulled to sleep, thinking he not, doesn't do anything, he doesn't care, he's been active the whole time. And Zephaniah declares this. Look at verse 6. I, God, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets, so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. God sees the sin of the people, and he sees the sin of the city, and he's moved. And what does he do? He brings, he acts, he brings pain, he brings sorrow, he shakes them. He shakes the nations around them. He says, look at me. Look at all I'm, look, can you not see me? 
He's trying to awaken them. He's wooing them and pursuing them. He's bringing pain into their lives just to try to correct them, to get their eyes, their gaze up off of these lesser things and to see him, to see his beauty. And all the more, they give themselves away to corruption and disobedience. They ignore him and they reject him. They put their heads down and they plow through it. I can get it done. I can figure it out. Is this not us? Is this not our culture in which we live? You see, in the West, we view every single problem, every ounce of discomfort, as a problem to be solved. Every ounce of discomfort, every ounce of pain, every ounce of sorrow is a problem to be solved. It's something to be figured out. All of my anxiety and my depression is a problem to be solved. All of my financial strife and and, and woes is a problem to be solved. I need to figure this out. I gotta put myself up by the bootstraps and we gotta we gotta create a solution to this problem. Right? There's a problem in my marriage, we need counseling, we need to find a solution. I have anxiety, I have sorrow, I need I need counseling, I need drugs, I need prescriptions, I need to solve the problem. I got a thing going on at work with my boss. I need to figure this out, I need to solve the problem. He needs to be removed, I need to get him fired, I need to figure out a way to solve the problem. I got this thing going on in my family, I gotta solve the problem. I got this thing going on in, in, with my finances, I gotta solve the problem. Every ounce of pain and discomfort is a problem to be solved. This is how the people of Israel view it. This is how you and I view it. And not, never do we slow down and ask the question, what in this pain is God trying to teach me? What's he trying to awaken me to? What's he trying to show me? What's he opening my eyes to? See, the beauty of the message of Zephaniah is that God is active in the pain of the people. He's actually the one bringing it about. And that's good news. It's good news. Hebrews tells us that he disciplines the ones he loves, that he chastises those whom he receives. It's good news. You know what's bad news? If it's all just coincidence, if it's all just random chance, there's no meaning in that. There's no purpose in that. But that's not what's true. God is active and he's bringing it about. He's, he's wooing and pursuing his people with it. And yet for so many of us, we just put our head down and we just plow through it. It's a problem to be solved. I got to figure it out. Um, I asked permission to share this story. Over the past few um, months here at Flourishing Grace, um, we've been praying hard for a specific couple. We, we pray hard for the prayer requests that come in. If you, if you receive the prayer request list, you, you know this um, there's a couple that's been on there every single week. Um, uh, Brett and Amanda Turner. Um, Brett's on staff at Flourishing Grace. He oversees our adult formation ministry. And, and his wife, Amanda, has been suffering with, with chronic illness and chronic pain um, for a, a, a long season now. And she's been through the ringer. Um, this sweet, unbelievably kind and gentlewoman has been put through all sorts of hell. And she's been to the ER, and the ER has sent her to the doctors, and doctors have said, man, you need to have surgery. That's the only way it's ever going to get corrected. And so they applied to have the surgery, and the insurance company said, no. Like, we're not, we're not going to pay for that. It's like a $30,000-plus surgery, and they're like, yeah, that's not our problem. That's your problem. Like, we're, not, we're just not going to pay for it. And the insurance company said, man, it's just trying to push them off and push them off and push them off. And, and Brett and Amanda have spent hours on the phone going around and around and around and around. They found out uh, last week uh, that it's denied. It's not going to happen. There's a 45-day mandatory waiting period before they can even reapply. 
in last Friday, uh, or last Tuesday, sorry, um, Brett was in my office, and we were just talking about this, and kind of mourning and grieving over all this, and um, Brett said, you know, that morning, the Tuesday morning, they'd kind of sat down for a family devotional, and just kind of wept over this, and acknowledged God, I know, I know, I know that you are trying to teach me something. You're trying to show us something. You're trying to to open our eyes to something. I don't know what it is, but all I know is I just want my wife to be better. It's what I, we need this. We need you to move. And I don't know what you want from me. I don't know what you're trying to show me, but I know you're trying to show me something. Open my eyes to see it and heal my wife. And on Friday, uh, Brett was on the phone with the insurance, kind of one last-ditch effort all day long. And they said, no, sorry, man, it's denied. It's not going to happen. It's not, not going to happen. And they put him on hold, and he spends the time on hold just praying, God, I know you're trying to teach me. I know you're trying to open my eyes. I, I know you want to show me something, but I don't know what it is you're trying to show me. And the guy comes back off hold, and he says, hey, man, listen, I've, I've talked to other people, and there's... Nothing we can do. It's just, it just is what it is. It's just what it is. And they put you back on hold. And Brett goes back on hold, and he's, God, I know, I know you're trying to open my eyes. I know you're trying to show me. What do you want me to see? I need you to fix this. The guy comes back on the line again and again and again. I'm sorry, man. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. And so in the moment, Brett is trying to solve the problem, and he's trying to turn to the Lord, and he's just trying to do both. He's trying to be faithful to his family and his wife and to his God. And the conversation ends. The guy says, I'll call you back. And Brett's like, you ain't going to call me back. Sure enough, a few hours later, they call, and Amanda picks up the phone, and they say, hey, I just want to let you know that uh, we pushed it through. It's approved. You're going to have surgery on the 31st. It's taken care of. We're going to pay for it all. And in his tenderness and in his sweetness, God has awakened that family to see that he is far more precious than the idol of wealth. What's going to happen? How are we going to afford this? How are we going to pay for this? He's far more precious than the idol of health. We need to have this surgery. We need to make this fix. We need to fix this problem. He's far more beautiful than all of the idols that they've built. He's far more idol, beautiful than the idol of comfort. He's far more beautiful than the idol of security. He's far more beautiful than even the idol of Brett's wife. As hard as that is, he's far more wonderful than my wife. He's far more beautiful than my family. He is the greatest treasure. And when he leads you to the absolute end of yourself, that's the most beautiful place you can be. And that's Advent It's where you need to be. It's the best place you can be. Because when you see how beautiful he is and he increases your joy and your love and your delight for him, then you're ready for the good news. Hey, it's taken care of. We push it through. You're going to have surgery on the 31st. Only then are you ready for the good news. It doesn't always end beautifully and it doesn't always end well. Just for a warning, heads up. For the people of Israel, it doesn't end well. They keep their heads down. They continue to ignore. It doesn't go well for them. God corrects the people, but the people will still do not listen. And there's a consequence for that. The last thing I want you to see this morning is this. Advent will end. Okay, Advent's not a permanent thing. He's coming. Okay, And when he comes, Advent's over. 
And he's coming. This is what we see from Zephaniah in verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up. Advent's over. It's over. There's no more waiting. I'm here. I rise up and seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble the kingdoms, and to pour out upon them my indignation. All my burning anger in the, fi- in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God says, enough. I'm not going to allow this to go on any farther. I have tried to get your attention. I've tried to draw your gaze. I've tried to show you where your hope is found. I've tried to show you where your flourishing is. And, it's, and you're not listening. And so I'm going to take all of the things that you think are valuable, all the nations and all these false gods and all these great kings of the earth, and I'm going to wipe it all away. Then what are you going to bow to you? Then what are you going to worship? Then what are you going to chase after? When I'm the only thing that's left, then maybe you'll see me. Why would he do that? Why, why would he do that? How could a loving God pour out his anger and his indignation, his fiery wrath, and destroy the earth? Um, I got these two little boys at my house, uh, Winston and Haddon. And uh, we live on, right here in 4th North on the downhill side of the road. And it's a busy street. And if you've been around Flourishing Grace, you've heard me use this illustration before, and I'll probably use it a hundred more times. Um, fair warning. These cars come flying down the street, and since they were little, when we said, hey, there's a line in the driveway, and you can't cross that line. It's simple, right? On this side of the line, it's too, you're too close to danger. You're too close to destruction. You're too close to death, and I don't want you to get hurt. So just stay on this side of the line. You can play outside, and you can play all day in the driveway, have fun. If you chase a ball, if a ball goes out of the street, just come get me. I'll happily walk all the way down the hill because it's going to roll all the way down the hill, and I'll go get it. I've done it a hundred times, so I'll do it again, okay? Just don't go chase it. And so I go back in the house to get some things done, and I look out the window, and sure enough, Haddon is all the way down by the street, like playing with a mailbox. I'm like, oh, what are you doing? I run outside, I grab him. No, 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 buddy, listen. Remember, there's a line. You cannot go on that side of the line. You've got to stay on this side of the line. Look, all your toys. Look, there's your bike and your big wheel and your scooter and your basketball and your basketball hoop. Everything you want to play, it's all over there. Go play. I go back in the house. And a few minutes later, I look out the window. And he's down by the street again. What are you doing? Like, run outside and grab another buddy. You cannot go past the line. You cannot go past the line. It's, you're going to get hurt over there. Look at all your toys. Look at all the goodness. Look at all the freedom and fun. Let's go play. I'll go play with you. I'll play with you. Let's play. We play. We play. And eventually, I'm like, I got to go get some stuff done. So I go get a few things done. And I peek back out there. He's down by the street again. I run out there and I grab him and I swat him on the butt. I'm like, you cannot go past the line. Come back inside. You're going to go to the house. You can't go in the house for the rest of the day. You're not going outside anymore. You can't play with your toys anymore. You're not going outside. No more joy. No more fun. You're staying in the house. Why? Because I'm an angry dad. I'm a vengeful dad, hateful dad, wrathful dad. No, I love my son, and I have provided for him an immense wealth of toys to play with, all the treasure and all the joy and all the delight that you could ever long for. I provided it for him. It's all right there. And I know where death and destruction lies. I know what it's going to cost him if he heads away from me. And what he, if he heads across that line. 
And so again and again and again, I've wooed him, and I've pursued him, and I've called him, and in his stubbornness, he's chosen not to listen. And so finally, I say, fine, it's gone, it's done. I'm taking it all away, and you can't have any of it. And friends, this is good news. Whether you realize it or not, it's good news. Because it means that the God of the universe loves you. Far more than you can ever begin to know. He loves you. And the very next verse begins to reveal the depths of his love for us. Look at the very next verse, verse 9. At that time, the same time, at the same time that I destroyed the earth, okay? At that time, the same time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. I'm going to transform their speech, and they're all going to call upon me, and I'm going to be right there to draw near to them. I'm going to be right there to help them. I'm going to be right there to pursue them. I'm going to be right there to play in the driveway with them. I'm going to be right there with them. In that day, they're going to see my beauty. They're going to see my worth. They're going to see the death and destruction. They say, I don't want that. They're going to choose me all with one accord. Together, they're going to do this. Verse 11, on that day, the same day, you shall not be put to shame because of, the dis, dis, because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst the proudly exalted ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name or in the glory of the Lord. I'm going to give you my glory. This is, I love the prayer of Jesus, this high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. He asks the Father, Father, I, listen, I know I'm going to the cross. I know I'm going to die, but I need you to be with these men. And the one thing he asks for, the thing that he wants more than he wants anything else, show them my glory. Just show them, open their eyes. You see, what Jesus understands and what God understands is if he just gives you a glimpse of his glory, you are ruined for anything less. He said, in that day, I'm going to show them my glory, and they'll hide in my glory, and they'll draw near to my glory, and all of those who have rejected me, and all those who have lured them away will become nothing in comparison to me. Those who say, I have a million followers on social media, the, the faithful people of God are going to be like, what? Have you not seen the glory of God? I have a billion dollars. Who cares? I built a rocket. Who cares? I, have you not seen the glory of God? Have you not seen it? I'm CEO. Who cares? I'm president. Who cares? Have you not seen the glory of God? Look what I have. Everything you could ever want is in him. And on that day, you will fully have it. We are people who live in this space between the first advent and the second advent. And in this second advent that, Germ that Zephaniah is pushing us to, we will have the glory of God. And why will we have it? It's because of the king. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away 
the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The king is coming, Zephaniah says. The king is coming. He's taking away all of your judgments. He's pointing us to both advents again. The first advent when Christ comes and establishes his rule and reign as king. Christ is made king after he conquers sin and death. All of your judgments are taken away by the blood of Christ. The wrath of God is poured out upon him so that you would not endure it. You're clothed in his righteousness. And then he raises from the dead as king. The Lord has become the king. And he is in our midst. He's pointing us at both advents, the first and the second. The king is coming. And then lastly, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will extol over you with loud singing. Friends, if you are in Christ, God rejoices over you. He is glad over you. He loves you and wants to quiet you by his love. He extols over you with loud song. Now, some of you are like, hang on, hang on. For the first, like, two-thirds, three-quarters of this sermon, Josh, you talked to me about how we are complacent, how we're broken, how we have done the wrong things, and because of that, God's going to pour out his judgment, and the king is coming. It's not a good coming. Yes, that's true. But when the king came, he died in your place. He says, man, put, take their sin and take their shame and take their disobedience and put it on me. Pour out your wrath on me so that I can sing over them. I, I want to clothe them in my righteousness and I want to make them delight. I want to rejoice over them and I want to delight in them. and I want to quiet them with my love and I want to sing over them. And in order for that to happen, I'll take their sin. I'll take their stain. I'll take the brokenness. Nail it to the cross. Cover it in my blood. Let me be the sacrifice for them. Clothe them in my righteousness. Clothe me in their sin so that I can raise from the grave and sing over them. This is what our king has done. This is the first advent. And he's coming back. And he's coming back to sing over you. He's coming back to rejoice over you. He's coming back to delight in you. He's coming back to quiet you in his love. Are you in him? Are you in Christ? Have you given your life to him? Have you surrendered to him? Does your knee bow to him every day? Or are you building your own little kingdom with your own little idols, ignoring, 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 ignoring? It's time for us to be awakened. Awakened to the work of Christ. To what he's done. To what he's doing right now. And what he's going to do again in the coming of our Savior King. Friends, my hope is that in this Advent season that you will be awakened, that you will either again bow your knee to him or for the first time ever bow your knee to him and that you'll never come up, that you'll bow to him every single day, that you'll acknowledge him as king, and that one day you'll hear him in a deafening song sing over you. You see, what Zephaniah is pointing us to is a Christmas that never ends. In a couple weeks, it all goes away. 
all the craziness. No more holiday parties. The ornaments come off the tree. The tree goes out to the curb and it goes into the dump or it goes back into the basement until it, where it sits for another 360 some odd days until next year. But the time is coming when our king will return for us and that rejoicing will never end. Every day will be Christmas at the return of the king. Let us look forward to that day. Let us be awakened to that day. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we come before you this morning, and we just declare in this place our need for you. We declare in this place that we are not a people who are always awakened to that, that we are a people who are lulled to sleep by the culture, the prince of the power of the air. We are people who are lulled to sleep by the comforts of this world. We're people who are lulled to sleep by our independence. The people who can fiercely, we can do it on our own. We can figure it all out. Would you kindly and gently and maybe even not so gently awaken us to our need for a greater king, a greater king than me, a greater king than self. Would you awaken us to what you've done for us what you're doing in us right now. You are active even in your absence. And then you are coming back for us. Change the way we think and change the way we act. Make us a humble people. Make us, make us a gentle and lowly people who delight in your glory alone. Help us. Help us to shed our sin to shed our wandering, haughty eyes. Help us to fix them on you alone. We need you to do that. I need you to do that. Pray these things in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, let's stand. Let's sing to him, the one who one day will sing over us.